everyone. Welcome back to Yacht Talk Hacking the Boards. I'm Yakov. I'm Ben. And welcome to episode 27 on cirrhosis. This episode is all about hepatic failure, and that's when your liver essentially stops doing what it's supposed to do. We're mostly going to be focusing on chronic liver failure, essentially cirrhosis, and its complications, and then we'll end on a brief discussion of acute liver failure. There's going to be a lot of pathophysiology, so get ready for a very deep dive into these cases. Let's jump in. All right. So we have a 55-year-old male with a past medical history of infective endocarditis and opioid use disorder who comes in with swelling of his abdomen and legs. He's also noticed fatigue and weight loss. Vitals are normal. An exam reveals a whole lot of things. Scleral icterus, bilateral gynecomastia, spider angiomas on his chest, palmar erythema, swelling of his abdomen, three-plus pitting edema of his legs, ecchymoses, and testicular atrophy. Holy cow, that is one very revealing physical exam. (laughs) Yep, that was an insane amount of information, but that's how they'll dish it out on the test. So let's break down this presentation. First off, what is cirrhosis? As we alluded to earlier, cirrhosis is essentially chronic liver failure, but technically it's referring to the fibrosis that you see in the liver. I see. What are the main causes of cirrhosis? Actually, pretty much everything we spoke about last episode. So chronic hepatitis B or hepatitis C, alcohol abuse, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or hereditary disorders can cause it. Hep C and alcoholic hepatitis are the most common causes in the United States. What etiology do you expect led to cirrhosis in this patient? His history of opioid use disorder and infective endocarditis are test writers' favorite hints for a history of IV drug use, which sometimes they'll tell you outright. IV drug use is the main risk factor for hep C, so that's probably what led to this patient's cirrhosis. Hints for alcoholic cirrhosis are generally pretty on the nose, such as the question stem mentioning 10 drinks per day or something like that. Great advice, Yaakov. Even though we have a lot of evidence from the exam, How would we go about diagnosing this patient with cirrhosis? So labs would be helpful, especially a CBC and CMP, and an abdominal ultrasound would likely show liver fibrosis and possibly a shrunken liver. Before we get into specific lab findings, what are the overarching causes of the different findings in cirrhosis? Very important concept to organize. So there is hyperestrogenism, decreased synthetic function, decreased metabolic function, and portal hypertension. Let's take those one at a time. From the massive list of this patient's physical exam findings that we mentioned, which are related to hyperestrogenism? Sure. So estrogen is usually broken down in the liver, and that doesn't happen when the liver is failing. This leads to spider angiomas, gynecomastia, testicular atrophy, and palmar erythema. Great. Which of these findings are associated with decreased metabolic function? So with decreased metabolic function, that's what gets you jaundice, since bilirubin is normally conjugated and excreted by the liver. What about the signs of portal hypertension? So one important sign of portal hypertension is ascites, which is that swelling that we saw in the patient's abdomen. Great. So we're going to delve much deeper into that in the next case. For now, which signs are related to the decreased synthetic function? So with decreased synthetic function, we could see weight loss. So the weight loss could be explained by decreased protein synthesis, and particularly decreased albumin synthesis, which actually also explains the patient's lower extremity edema. The ecchymoses are from a decreased synthesis of clotting factors. Can you explain how low albumin leads to lower extremity edema? In a phrase, the answer to that is decreased oncotic pressure. 
when the concentration of proteins in the serum decreases, there's less oncotic pressure that pulls water into the vasculature. So without that pulling pressure, the water third spaces, meaning that it flows out of the vessels and that causes fluid to build up. Great, perfect explanation. Love that pathophys. Before we move into labs, can you explain how you would differentiate these fluid overload signs from something like heart failure? That's a great question since both heart failure and liver failure can cause ascites and lower extremity edema and test writers love to take advantage of that. Basically, it comes down to the patient's risk factors and other signs. Heart failure would also typically cause an elevated JVP and wouldn't cause the many other signs that we spoke about with cirrhosis. The patient's history would also hint at some form of ischemia instead of IV drug use or alcohol. Thorough differentiation there, Yak. Let's walk through some classic lab findings in cirrhosis. What are labs we'd see due to decreased metabolic function? So there we would see elevated total bilirubin and possibly ALKFOS, but ASD and ALT, we would expect them to be either slightly elevated or even normal in cirrhosis. We can also see elevated ammonia since the liver is usually responsible for converting that to urea. Perfect. What would we see from decreased synthetic function? So from decreased synthetic function, we would see both PTINR and PTT elevated in the blood, but PT is actually elevated sooner uh, since factor seven has the shortest half-life. We'll get into all those details in our heme episodes. The other main synthetic lab is albumin, which we previously mentioned would be decreased. What are some labs portal hypertension could affect? Portal hypertension can lead to thrombocytopenia since you get an enlarged spleen and that enlarged spleen sequesters the platelets inside of it. Also, third spacing in general can result in effective dehydration since there's less circulating blood and that could lead to abnormalities like a prerenal AKI, hyponatremia, and orthostatics. Now that we've covered the general signs and labs in cirrhosis, let's get into a case specifically on portal hypertension as promised. Great. So for this case, we're going to dive deeper into some of these cirrhosis complications from portal hypertension. It's a long one, but super high yield, and I think we can handle it. You ready, Ben? I am so ready. Let's do it. So we have a 65-year-old male with a long history of alcohol use disorder, and he's coming into the hospital because his abdomen is, quote, swollen like a pumpkin. Hmm. His legs are also swollen. He can barely walk a block without getting short of breath. And he noticed some blood in his stool. Vitals show a blood pressure of 160 over 80, heart rate of 110. Exam reveals jaundice, decreased basilar breath sounds on the right, swelling of his abdomen, a fluid wave, shifting dullness, splenomegaly, and dilated abdominal veins. That's a lot. First off, what is portal hypertension and how does it occur? So due to fibrosis of the liver, the portal veins, which drain into the liver, get backed up from the extra resistance. This results in increased hydrostatic pressure and fluid extravasation into the abdomen. Great. And how does the portal hypertension explain the patient's vitals? Through various mechanisms, portal hypertension and cirrhosis in general increase nitric oxide production and that results in splanchnic vasodilation, which is a great buzzword to know for the test. This splanchnic vasodilation causes hyperdynamic circulation, which, as you might remember from our CV valvular disease episode, results in widened pulse pressure, as in a much higher systolic than diastolic blood pressure, as well as tachycardia. Great. And I'll remind our listeners, the blood pressure that we mentioned was 160 over 80, which is a very wide pulse pressure. So that's great that we explained why these patients have a wide pulse pressure. Let's work through more of the signs of portal hypertension. 
why might this patient have decreased basal or breath sounds and shortness of breath? So the fluid backup in the abdomen can actually leak through these micro defects in the diaphragm and cause a pleural effusion, which in this case we would call hepatic hydrothorax. This is actually more common on the right. Nice. And what about splenomegaly? How can we explain that? As we alluded to earlier, the portal hypertension causes backed up blood flow to the spleen. So the spleen literally gets larger to accommodate the increased volume. As we mentioned, this results in more platelets being sequestered in the spleen and fewer in the blood. So next, let's talk about some of these veiny physical exam findings. What are portosystemic anastomoses? And what are the three manifestations of those connections that we see in portal hypertension? Portosystemic anastomoses are the locations in the vasculature where the portal and systemic venous systems meet. The three main ones are the lower esophageal veins, the periumbilical veins, and the rectal veins. Portal hypertension leads to backup of blood into these areas, leading to esophageal varices, caput medusae, and rectal varices, respectively. Nice. Which signs in the patient correspond to that? The dilated abdominal veins describe caput medusae, and his lower GI bleeding are, is likely from rectal varices. Nice. And what tests should we do for this patient eventually to visualize if there are any issues with the other portosystemic anastomosis that we mentioned? We would do an upper GI endoscopy to see if there are any esophageal varices. You should actually get an upper endoscopy in, on any patient with a new diagnosis of cirrhosis. Great. And let's say we do see varices on our upper endoscopy. What would we do for this patient? As we mentioned in our esophagus episode, the treatment for chronic varices is non-selective beta blockers, which inhibit beta-2 induced vasodilation, decreasing flow to the varices. Then you would repeat an upper endoscopy every year to keep an eye on them. Perfect. And which feared complication of varices are we looking to prevent? That would be variceal hemorrhage, which can cause life-threatening blood loss. And speaking of that, what's the treatment for a variceal bleed? The highest yield to know for the exam is IV octreotide, which is a somatostatin analog that vasoconstricts splanchnic vessels, leading to rapidly decreased flow to the esophageal veins. You'd also transfuse the patient with two large bore IVs, give IV antibiotics, and perform emergency endoscopy to close the bleeding vessels. That's a great overview. And what other procedure would be used if the bleeding can't get under control? You would perform what's called a transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt, or TIPS, procedure, which diverts portal blood flow to the systemic venous system. Wow, that sounds intense. Let's get back to our patient and explain the last of his findings. What do we call this abdominal swelling that we saw in the patient, and what's causing it? That would be ascites, which is the third spacing of the fluid in the abdomen. In this case, it's due to increased hydrostatic pressure and hyperdynamic circulation, which pushes fluid out of the vasculature and into the abdominal space. And are ascites always the result of portal hypertension? No. Test writers want to make sure you know that heart failure can also cause ascites due to fluid backup and hepatic congestion. More rarely, malignancies can cause ascites as well, and you typically see blood in the fluid if that were the case. Great explanation. Let's talk about these physical exam findings from the ascites. What is shifting dullness and what's a fluid wave? Shifting dullness refers to the finding that changes in position change the sound of percussing the abdomen, and that's because the fluid is gravity dependent, so it shifts and causes dullness in different places. 
Fluid wave is also a percussion finding, but this refers to a visible vibration of the abdomen on the opposite side to the percussion, which is a result of transmitted force through the acidic fluid. What's our next step in managing this patient? Well, a few things, and any of these could be the answer on the test, depending on what they've already done in the question stem. First, we'd want to get this patient on furosemide and spironolactone fast, which would decrease all the fluid that's backed up in the portal system and the lungs. Then we'd get an abdominal ultrasound to make sure the abdominal swelling is definitely ascites. If it is, then we'd get a diagnostic paracentesis, which is literally taking a big needle and poking it into the abdomen to sample some acidic fluid. We would also perform a therapeutic paracentesis, which just involves taking off as much fluid as possible. Finally, we suggest alcohol cessation, which can improve both symptoms and mortality long-term. Wonderful. And what labs do we send for the ascites fluid? The most important are the cell count and differential, along with the albumin. If you were concerned about malignancy as the cause, which we're not really in this case, you'd also send cytology. All right, let's break those down. So first, why would we send albumin? We want to calculate a serum ascites albumin gradient, or SAAG, because this helps us decide if the ascites are exudative or transudative. An SAAG less than 1.1 indicates an exudative ascites because the protein level in the ascites would be high. That's usually seen in cancer, pancreatic ascites, nephrotic syndrome, or even tuberculosis. If the ascites protein is low, and thus the SAAG is high, then they're likely from either cirrhosis or heart failure. Perfect. Now, why do we need to get a cell count and a differential for the ascites fluid? A big concern with ascites that they love to test on is that they can get infected, causing spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, or SBP. A neutrophil count over 250 in acidic fluid is diagnostic for SBP. Yep, and I've seen that come up on tests, so make sure to remember that number 250. And briefly, how does SBP present and how do we treat it? Usually with ascites, fever, mental status changes, and abdominal tenderness. You would treat it with IV ceftriaxone. All right. Before we wrap up this overloaded case. Good one. Thank you. Thank you. What's one long-term complication of cirrhosis that presents with ascites, weight loss, and often a single palpable nodule? Sounds to me like you're getting at hepatocellular carcinoma, which patients with cirrhosis are at very high risk of developing. And with that in mind, let's do a much quicker case on one last acute complication of cirrhosis. Okay, so now we have a 60-year-old male with a 10-year history of alcoholic cirrhosis and recent variceal bleed who was brought into the ED by his wife who found him lying in bed confused about where he was. She also says that he recently started a new medication but can't remember which one. His vitals are normal, and exam reveals a lethargic, disoriented patient with severe jaundice and abdominal swelling, as well as a flapping tremor of his dorsiflexed outstretched hands. What complication of cirrhosis is going on here? So this is a pretty classic description for hepatic encephalopathy. What gives you that idea, and what's the pathophys? So hepatic encephalopathy, like we mentioned earlier, is when ammonia neurotoxicity leads to changes in mental status and neurologic signs such as those seen in this patient. And what's this physical exam finding going on with the patient's hands? So what you were describing is called asterixis, which is flapping of the wrists, and that's due to the encephalopathy. The patient's wife also mentioned a new medication. What could have triggered this patient's encephalopathy after all these years of cirrhosis? So medications such as sedatives or narcotics can precipitate hepatic encephalopathy via inhibiting cognitive reserve. 
Diuretics, especially furosemide, can also trigger encephalopathy through a mixture of dehydration and electrolyte abnormalities, especially hypokalemia. Interesting. I love when electrolytes come up. I have to say, Yakov. Any other triggers that could have been unrelated to the new medication? You did mention that the patient had a recent variceal bleed. And if he was treated with a TIPS procedure, which we talked about earlier, that could actually increase the risk of developing encephalopathy. And that's because ammonia in the portal circulation can now more easily reach the systemic circulation because you've created a shunt. And although unlikely in this patient, infection can also trigger encephalopathy. Thanks for that rundown. How do we treat hepatic encephalopathy? We want to get rid of ammonia, usually by giving lactulose, which causes extremely frequent stools filled with ammonia, and that will decrease your circulating levels. You can also give rifaximin, which is a gut-selective antibiotic, to essentially kill off the ammonia-producing bacteria. Of course, we'd also correct any possible triggers, such as repleting their electrolytes, their potassium, giving IV fluids, or starting antibiotics if appropriate. Before we move on to our last case on acute liver failure in the absence of chronic liver disease, let's do a general review. What are the three main decompensations that we speak about in cirrhosis? Great idea. So the three main complications which comprise decompensated cirrhosis are one, esophageal varices, two, ascites, and three, encephalopathy. Varices and ascites are from portal hypertension, and encephalopathy is from decreased metabolic function. Great. Now on to our last case of the episode. All right, let's do it, Ben. So let's say we have a 70-year-old man, past medical history of hypertension, alcohol use disorder, and chronic back pain, and he's coming in with four days of malaise, nausea, vomiting, and confusion. His husband tells you that the patient drinks several whiskey shots daily and has been taking a lot of his over-the-counter pain medication lately. Vitals show a heart rate of 105 and are otherwise normal. Exam reveals a lethargic man with scleral icterus, right upper quadrant tenderness, and flapping hand tremors. What do you think is going on here? This sounds to me like acute liver failure from acetaminophen toxicity, given that he's been taking an excessive amount of, quote, painkillers, and his liver function probably isn't top-notch from all the alcohol. Great, nice catch. And what are some other causes of acute liver failure? We already mentioned viral hepatitis can do it, as well as drug toxicity from acetaminophen, isoniazid, and a few others that are less tested as well as ischemia, aka shock liver, which can occur after an MI or any other cause of shock, such as sepsis. Nice. And how do we diagnose acute liver failure? There are three requirements for a diagnosis of ALF or acute liver failure. There needs to be evidence of severe liver injury with AST and ALT usually over 1,000. There also needs to be clinical signs of hepatic encephalopathy, such as the altered mental status and asterixis in this patient. And there needs to be sign of loss of liver synthetic function, which is first seen by an elevated INR and later as a decrease in albumin. Note that this is different than the three decompensations of cirrhosis. Exactly. The overlap is encephalopathy, but the other two were varices and ascites, which are complications of chronic liver failure, not acute. Right. So let's say our patient has an AST of 3,000 and an ALT of 4,000. And let's say his INR is two, so we can confidently diagnose ALF. How do we treat our patient? We'd start with an acetaminophen level, and if it's elevated like we would expect, we would give N-acetylcysteine, which basically helps the liver metabolize the toxic byproduct of acetaminophen called NAPQI. In general, ALF is treated supportively while managing the underlying cause. In the end, unfortunately, many causes of acute liver failure will result in need for liver transplant. 
Well, that was a jam-packed episode on liver failure, but it is such a high-yield topic that we wanted to leave no stone unturned. Tune in next time for a journey through the biliary tree.